The old saying goes that defense wins World Cups, and in 2019, that adage held true, as the Springboks only conceded four tries in seven matches to claim their third world title. The mastermind behind their steal was renowned defense coach Jacques Ninaba, who has spent more time than he's healthy in dark rooms lit by LED screens watching men tackle each other. Jacques has been the power behind the throne for all of his coaching career, but in 2020, he has stepped into the spotlight as the 15th post-isolation Springbok head coach. Normally, he would have overseen at least two test matches by this time of the year, but due to the suspension of competition as a result of the coronavirus, he's still waiting to lead the reigning world champion Springboks into test battle. Until then, like a likable Bond villain, he has time to plot and plan another four years of world rugby dominance as he waits to unleash the box again. I'm Craig Ray, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Springbok coach Jacques Ninalba onto the Maverick Sports Podcast. This week's episode is proudly sponsored by Rain. Three teams, two halves, one winner. It's cricket like you've never seen it before. Three team cricket, brought to you by Rain, your unlimited data network. Rain starts play on 18 July, live on Supersport. Across the park they come, and losing it. Arms there, pops up in a toy. Here comes Chesley Colby. Colby bounces towards the fence. Beats one, still going. Chesley Colby. Chesley Colby. South Africa. Doc Ninaba, welcome onto the show. Does that still give you goosebumps when you hear that? Hi, Craig. Yeah, no, it still does. Feel so long ago. <laughs> well, it's not that long ago, but it does. It does feel strangely long ago because there's just been very little rugby in this strange environment we live in. And I guess when you were named as Springbok head coach, you had all your plans in place for July, and and that's all gone out the window. So, uh, what have your days been like? Yeah, Craig. The days are, are pretty much uh, almost like a like an airplane standing on the on the tarmac without any any fuel in it. So <laughs> it's weird. It's frustrating. I would. It's probably the the best word that comes to my mind. So just waiting, almost waiting and waiting and waiting, and everything is ready to go, but but still waiting for the for the green light. I guess the other frustration is as a Springbok coach, you want to look at players' form, you want to assess players, and with no real competition, you can't even do that much. You know, normally if uh, a competition or a tour or something is cancelled, there might be some other rugby to look at. You don't even have that luxury. So how, how difficult is it going to be when you finally get to the field to finally pick a team? Um, yeah, yes, Craig. I think that hopefully, I think we what we are currently doing is trying to get a return to play policy return to play plan in place you know so hopefully in that return to play plan there, there is some games so hopefully we, we can have six games before we go into international competition and hopefully then by that stage uh, you can you can one will be able to look at our teams or our players are performing in those six or, or four to six games hopefully six but yeah so it is quite tough I mean the last games were played back in March so you can't actually go back on them and a lot of change since then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I suppose, not that New Zealand ever needs a, an advantage in rugby, but there they are playing rugby at the moment, Super Rugby at Taroa. they obviously getting some competition, they're getting some practice. And when the test season does start, they're going to be a, a few weeks, a few months even ahead of the rest of us. And that's going to be to everyone's disadvantage and to their advantage, surely. No, definitely. I think if we don't start returning to... To, to training and then return to play very soon, uh, they might, I think they'd probably be almost three months ahead of us. And resting 
does have its advantages, but no rugby player has ever become a better rugby player by wrestling and for 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 extended periods of time. You know, it's it's one thing to freshen up a body, and that is also necessary. But I mean, it's other thing uh, staying on top of your game. Uh, developing your skill set, becoming stronger, fitter. So, yeah, I, I guess we're not getting better by just sitting and waiting. And New Zealand are getting better because they're playing week in, week out. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, those things are out of your hands. So you've, just, you've got to play the cards you've been dealt. You started your coaching career at the Cheetahs and they weren't the most fashionable team in the early 2000s. They didn't have stars. Those were the cards you were dealt. When Rossi Rasmus became head coach, you... You worked with him and, and you guys ended up winning the, the Curry Cup in 2005, which I think was the first time in 29 years the Cheetahs had, had won South Africa's premier competition. Just take us back a little bit to those early days of coaching. Did you start out on a journey to become Springbok head coach? What was your sort of goal in the late 90s when it came to rugby? No, my goal was actually just to get it. Um, well, for those who don't know, I studied physio and I, I, I studied physio because I thought to get involved with sport, but not in in terms of, of professional sport. There wasn't professional sport back then. I'm talking about 90, uh, when I started phys- studying physio, it was 92, 93. So there wasn't professional sport. Rugby only went professional in 1996. But I wanted to work with, with sports people. That was always a, a dream and a goal and, and, and something that I thought would be nice and, and, and hence me going into studying physiotherapy. So, no, it never crossed my mind that I would ever become a Springbok head coach or that wasn't at that stage a dream. It was just to become a physio and start working with, with, uh, with sports people. And then things just happened from then. Uh, 95 happened, professional rugby came, 96 and then I got involved uh, with the cheetahs from the from the junior levels, uh, you know, and and then things just uh, escalated from there. Where did the the joy of defence coach come? How did you become a defence coach? I, I seem to understand there was a story where you guys had to, you know, pitch in and do all sorts of different jobs at the cheetahs, and and one of them was sort of saving time during the warm up. Tell us that story. Yes, Craig. Yeah, back back in the day when when we were the cheetahs, I was the the strength and conditioning coach. And we obviously probably were operating at about a 20% of the budget of the bigger teams uh, back then. So to be competitive, we, we wanted to produce a high-performance environment that was equal to the big teams, uh, um, the Bulls and those teams back in the day in Western Province. So everybody in the management had to do two jobs, if I can put it like that. So for, to give you an example, Rossi was obviously – was like director of rugby, was also the head coach and he also took uh, the forwards. Uh, and myself, I was the SNC coach, but I also did uh, a little bit of physio, physio overflow if there was, if the physio was too full. And, and, and I l- uh, later went to uh, defense coach. Alhard Miller was the, was the team manager, but also the backs coach. And Jakub Piper was, funny enough, he was the referee that traveled with us, but he was also our logistics manager, you know. So so everybody doubled up uh, in some sort of way. And and then as a SNC coach, normally way back, a normal training would be 90 minutes, where the first 30 minutes would go to the, 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 the biokineticist or the SNC coach, and he literally just warmed the players up. The coaches would, would not even be on the field sometimes. They would just stand and wait till the players are warm and until you hand them over to them, and then for 60 minutes they will take them through their paces. So 
Rossi basically said, listen, we are wasting time here, you know. Uh, so we decided to warm players up by by making them their defensive patterns, you know, uh, because it was it was a, it was something that you 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 did without a ball. So and you can do it at a slow pace, you know. It's just basically organization and defense. And that's basically how I got started. You know, Rossi wrote the first defense manual and mm. and then from then on I, I kinda enjoyed it and, and, and that's how it started, yeah. Defense, how much has that evolved since your early professional days? I mean, it seems it, it does go through phases. There was a stage where tries were hard to come by. There was a stage where tries were a lot easier to come by. It seems like it's gone back the other way to smothering defense again. Is it a constantly changing thing, defense in particular? Yeah, I think it, it's something that goes in circles, you know, attack coaches or let's say let's attack um, is at the helm and 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 yes they they put you under pressure and then defense coaches are trying to make plans to to contain the attack and then then defense uh, gets on top again and then attack coaches go and they started playing uh, making plans of how they're going to break the defense down again and then you see a whole swing and the struggle again and then uh, defense uh, attacks on top and then defenses on top so i think it's it's an ever-changing thing and it's basically got to do with just how the coaches work each other out we'll get back into some of the sort of your journey to to the Bok job but i want to go back to a conversation you and i had before your very first test as Bok defense coach uh, under Russi in 2018 you were going to play wales and i remember we had a chat about what are you going to do and you said i don't know what we're going to do i've got one half hour session with defense session with the team before the wales test and we got to decide are we going to like push out or we're going to play in outside in defense and and just Try and explain to the listeners how difficult it is to to bed down a defense, such a difficult, complex component of the sport. Yeah, it, it takes time. It, it's, it's a whole thing between getting players to to understand, to get the knowledge of it. So there's there's a few there's a few building blocks in 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 a defense system. First thing is you you got to understand the knowledge, or you got to have the knowledge of how how it works and. And that takes time to embed and, and to learn for players. And then secondly, they have to develop this skill set to go with that. And then thirdly, you get to confidence, you know, and 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 ach, it just takes time. It takes, uh, well, luckily for me, when I ca- when we came back, myself and Rusty from Munster, we knew that uh, we started um, defending like that when we were, were with, with Munster and, and it took us 14 weeks. So I think the guy who probably took the most uh, risk was probably Rossi. He knew it's going to take time to get a defense system installed and probably took the whole first year, I would say, in the we, we played 14 test matches, funny enough, in year one, and, and it probably took all 14 mm. uh, to go get all those little building blocks in place to get the system up and going. I recall those early test matches, particularly the England series and particularly the first sort of two tests. They exposed our wings a little bit wide. They scored a few tries because the, the wings were shooting up. But I remember that was part of the plan was for the wings just to be committed. And if they made mistakes, you guys backed them, which obviously paid off in the long run. But that must have been a, a difficult period as coaches because you were getting torn apart uh, at, at times. But you, you sort of stuck with the belief. You didn't try and change your system to to suit the the pressure you were under. Yeah, I think the guys you need probably uh, the tap on the shoulder is firstly the head coach because he knows it's going probably like I said we knew it's going to look like that and we know it's going to be tough to to explain and 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 and, and to get 
the the the, the public and the sponsors and the and the people do know that it's going to take some time because always when you say listen we, we we're busy with something we're building something it's almost like a cliche yeah whenever you lose something or things doesn't go well uh, that's normally what what people say is listen we're building towards something just give us some time but but okay so that's the first thing and the other thing was the players you know uh, they must they must also take a tap on the shoulder because uh, for a player to get thrown into uh, something that they that is completely like a 100 160 degree turnaround from what he's used to uh, and and he doesn't actually know how, how it works, and, and then you get thrown into that, and it's your first test match. If you if, if you think even the Welsh uh, game, Mapimpi's first test match for the box, and then you take a Sabu and a Piwe in that first test against England, and they're playing against established wingers, you know, and and you ask them, listen. Mm. Go and try this, and and uh, you're going to make mistakes, and that's all you learn. And 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 I must say, so I, I would say those two. Those two groups need a big back then, and in understanding that he's probably not going to look that that good, and then the players understanding that listen, they're going to make some mistakes, and people are going to crucify them and said they cost them test matches, and they 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 dropping the country and stuff like that. It, it's tough for it was tough for those two two candidates, if I can put it like that. But luckily, things worked out pretty okay at the end. <laughs> they certainly did, but. Uh... I guess it doesn't always seem like that at, at the moment. You know, Jacques, you, 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 you've taken over the Springbok job. It's probably the first time in the professional era where there's been promotion from within. One of the assistant coaches becomes the head coach, which says a lot about the current setup in a good way. You know, finally, we've got some continuity. How are you going to, how's your role going to change, you know, on match day, particularly for the Springboks? Will you still be on the side of the field? Will you be the first head coach to, to still, still run touch? No, no, no. It's not allowed. Unfortunately, it would be nice because uh, yes, it, uh, it's something. If, if you if, just if you look at uh, pro pro rugby or let's say internet pro international rugby, that's that's super rugby in my opinion, not local uh, curry cup rugby. But I started uh, on a pitch side in 1999 with Super Rugby, so so I've been there 21 years almost. If my if my if my calculations are correct, so it's going to be that's going to be different. Coaches aren't allowed to be in the playing per- perimeter according to World Rugby, so mm. you're not allowed to be. And the playing perimeter is the grass, you know, so you're not allowed to be on the field. Uh, so as to say, so I'll probably I'll be in the box. I've been in the coach's box only once before, and that's when we, <laughs> we coached the, the, the barbarians. <laughs> Are you going to be able to find it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's the funny thing. I don't know how to find them. I, I've, I've never been. So, uh, so, but luckily, I'm sure Rassi will be, will be next to uh, So he'll, he'll, he'll lead the way and he'll show me where, where's the shooter cuts to get <laughs> into the coach's box. But now I've never been there, ever. It's going to be hard on you in a way because you're so hands-on. You're so used to... Uh, being in the huddle with the team, talking tactics in between, you know, when someone scored a try and you're huddling around while the conversion's taking place or whatever. You're so used to passing on messages, checking on players as a physio, your your primary job as well. And suddenly that's going to be taken away from you. Are you do you think you're going to struggle with that transition? Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be something new. And 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 if you think about it, I won't have the eyes that normal coaches would have in the box. Mm. So normally uh, I don't even know what the view looks like, you know, if you understand what I'm saying. I'm, I'm used to 
to the view, next to the side of the pitch. And like you say, I'm I'm used to picking up what's the what's the feeling within the camp on or within the team currently playing. Is there confidence? Is there a little bit of doubt? What is the solutions? What are we struggling with? Where 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 I think in the coach's box, and that's why I use the words. I think in the coach's box, you get a but a much better or a, a high view of of everything that happens where space occurs. That's something we can't see next to the side of the field. You don't see space, but you see a lot of detail. You you and and, and emotion and stuff like that. So w- without a doubt, I think it would take some time. And and like I said, we've got our plan sorted out in terms of when I took the job. And when I say we, I'm talking about everybody in within the Springbok management. Fortunate enough, you know, we've got Rassi there, who's, who's probably who's been in the in the box for years. Uh, and then we've got uh, Zwandile Stick, who's been a head coach. Dion David's been a head coach. Felix Jones has been in the box with Rassi since we were with Munster. So so I've, I've, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of experience in the coaches' box. Uh, in terms of that. Talking about hands-on on the field, that period in the World Cup final in 2019 where England pounded your line for, <laughs> I don't know, it felt like felt like three years, but it was probably more like seven or eight minutes. And, and the team held them out and I think eventually conceded a penalty and only conceded three points. Uh, I seem to recall seeing you behind the dead ball line. I'm not sure that was <laughs> entirely allowed, but you, you, you do roam around. How much were you picking up from the defensive pattern watching the players in the heat of the moment from behind there that you could relate to them at the next break of play? I think the players were pretty pretty tuned in uh, in terms of what England uh, was trying to achieve in that in a, inside our 22 or in that passage. It's funny, but the only thing you basically do is encourage, you know, you know, try and get the guys off the ground and get them up. And, and if you see... Uh, players sweeping around you can you can shout to the winger because he's maybe watching the ball or watching the ruck and he doesn't see maybe somebody sweeping from the other side mm. so ach, it's little things like that that you but but yes you basically encouraging is probably the biggest and and I, the biggest thing that 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 of assistance that you give to the team and and in saying that I think maybe just the players who's ten meters from you can hear you because there's so much noise in the in the stand. So, so I think basically it just makes me feel feel comfortable in, the, in shouting and, and encouraging. It takes the nerves out. But now, yes, the players um, a big big tap on the shoulders for the players for that passage. It felt like an eternity next to the field and getting away with only conceding three points there was probably was was a was a big mental victory. I would say mm. for for the team. Absolutely, and and you get so wrapped up in the game when you're on the side of the field. You, I've heard stories that you don't even know the score. You, you're not even aware of of the match situation. You're more focused on the detail from close up. Were you able to to finally relax a little bit in that World Cup final when the box when the box were, were so far ahead, or were you still so wrapped up in it you weren't aware? No, it's funny enough, Greg. Yes, I, I didn't know what the score was, and the, the, the first time. Uh, I didn't even know what the halftime score was. <laughs> when I got in the halftime, uh, I just asked, uh, somebody told me, I, I asked, listen, what's the score? I think it was 12-6 or something like that. I think so, yeah. I thought it was 9-6. I thought it was, and, and when I heard 12-6, I thought, yeah, okay, that's that, that's not bad. That's uh, that's six points. We're almost a try ahead. And then, obviously, in the second half, we exchanged, exchanged a few penalties. And, yeah, I, I, I had no clue what the score was. And the funny thing is I always tell uh, my wife, listen, I, I would love to be in a big game where, where there's actually 15 – I don't think there will be in a big game 20 minutes where you can relax. But 
But we, we there's 15 or 10 minutes that you know, okay, the game's in the bag and you can actually just stop worrying and just start relaxing and, and taking in the atmosphere. And, and this was probably such a game. But but the first time that that I knew what the score was was when, when Russi wanted to empty the bench and put Herschel on. I think it was after Cheslin's try. And, and, and he, his, his question was, do you guys think we can put Herschel on? Remember that if we now get an injury, we will finish the game with 14 men. Mm. And uh, and and that, then I asked, listen, what is the score? And then they said, okay, 32, 12 or whatever the end score was. And I, I, I said, okay, 20 points. Okay, what? how much time left? And then they said eight minutes. And then that's the first time that I, I actually knew, okay, and, and, and okay, we – we are 20 points up with eight minutes to go and we're probably going to pull this one through. And 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 that's when, when probably I started relaxing. So I actually only had the last five minutes nice and calm and it's like the, <laughs> the atmosphere. Well, I'm glad you got to enjoy that <laughs> at least. <laughs> this week's episode is proudly sponsored by Rain. Three teams, two halves, one winner. It's cricket like you've never seen it before. Three-team cricket, brought to you by Rain, your unlimited data network. Rain starts play on 18 July, live on Supersport. We love bringing you the Maverick Sports Podcast, which gives us the excuse to talk to some of the greatest names in sport. And you can help us to chat to more world-class guests by reviewing and subscribing to Maverick Sports on Apple Podcasts. Let's just go back to the beginning of the World Cup, the New Zealand game. Obviously, it was hyped up as the big group game, you know, the world champions, uh, the reigning world champions against their oldest rivals. And But everyone knew at the back of their minds, and I'm sure you don't think like this in the team environment, but everyone knew that the result didn't really matter because, you know, neither New Zealand or South Africa were going to lose to Canada, Namibia or Italy, with all due respect. So it was, as far as anyone from the outside looking in, it was just a case of sorting out number one and two in the group. What was your mindset? Because it was a strange game. You probably had your opportunities to win it. In the end, they won by 10 points, but it it, it didn't feel like a big deal to most people. I, I guess, it. how did it feel to the team in that in, in that moment? Yeah, Craig, no, listen, we went full out to win that game. And I know it, it sounds like a weird comment, but I, I mean, that was our, our whole thing. We wanted to build on our momentum and and, and stuff like that. And so, so a big thing for us was momentum, you know, to keep momentum, to keep momentum. So we had one, uh, we had one draw prior to that, and and we just wanted to keep on with the winning momentum. So, so that game, yeah, it was. We had opportunities. I know afterwards when we when we discussed or we had a review of the game, we felt we had opportunities, and we actually created more opportunities in that in that game that than we did in the 16 all draw in Wellington and the game in Pretoria, mm-hmm. the one that we lost. We actually we, we created a lot of opportunities, but we didn't finish. And and New Zealand, like they. Which which makes them a good side is they I think they had about two opportunities maybe three and they capitalized on two so they, they had a very good conversion rate of the the, the the opportunities they got in that game so that was basically that for that game we we knew we had opportunities and I think the thing that probably came out of uh, out of that loss was that we we were we were crystal clear after that game in terms of what 
what we wanted to achieve. And it also will sound funny now, but we, we identified few areas that we had to get right if we wanted to be competitive in the World Cup. And 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 from then on, we focused on those those couple of things and, and we just worked towards that. And I felt that almost it's an irrespective. And and we, we the big game we knew was going to be Italy. Irrespective if we won the first game or not, we had to beat Italy. So the Italy game was probably the, the, the decider in terms of going forward into quarterfinals or not. So um, the Italy game was big for us, always from the start. It was the big game for us that we had to, we, we had to perform, we had to win, irrespective of what happened with the first one. Yeah, absolutely. Because you you can't lose two games, two group games in a World Cup and get through. You can, as 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 you showed, can get through with one. How, how I mean, Wales the the semi final. Let's just skip ahead to that game because that was in terms of the scoreboard was the tightest in terms of the pressure. Again, it was a, a strange game. Uh, you, you you kind of felt like you had broken the shackles when Delenda scored, and then they they came back. Did you always feel like that game was in control, even though the scoreline didn't suggest so? No, yes, never thought it was in control. It was, a, it, it was, it's probably out up. No, and, and I don't want to take anything away of the other teams, but it was a very tough game for us. And it, and it's been traditionally quite a tough game for us. I mean, for me coming back, we, we played them the first game, we lost that game, then we played them the end of the year, we lost that game comfortably. There was, there was probably two games in 2018 where I felt, we felt as a coaching group that we, we, we were, we were beaten. And 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 we weren't actually in the game, and that was one of them. So for us, it, the Welsh is always a, a tough team to play against. Uh, they they or that team they've got a very established uh, coaching group. So there's lots of experience. I think that was Warren Gatlin's uh, third World Cup um, with that group or with that team. I remember when I was with the box in 2011 in New Zealand, our first game of that World Cup was against Wales and we pulled it through with a one-point victory as well and Warren was coaching there and he was, mm. was the fly-off. So so there was a lot of continuity in that in that uh, Welsh team, in experience continuity, both in coaching and in the player playing group. So they had a very good understanding of what they what works for them, what doesn't work for them. They had a good defense system. They had a great kicking game. They could score points. I mean, leading in going into this World Cup, uh, and they they won the the Grand Slam. They won a Grand Slam. They were the top team of the Northern Hemisphere. If you look at if you look at the Six Nations uh, in terms of they won it and they didn't lose a game. Um, so they, there was a lot of things they were. And it was almost uh, we were the rugby champions, uh, rugby chip champions uh, of 2019, and they were the the Six Nations champions. So that that semi final was almost the, the the northern and southern hemisphere champions playing against each other in a semi semi final. Yeah, and uh, well, you did pull it through, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, of course, that history is on your shoulders. I know, in reality, the coaching setup with Rassi, a director of rugby, and you guys have such a close working relationship. That's probably not going to change too much in terms of how you approach things, I wouldn't imagine. But I guess from the outside looking in, you're going to have the spotlight on you a little bit more. Are you, are you ready for that? Because there's probably, there's hardly a tougher job. I can't think of a tougher job in world sport than the Springbok head coach. And you've always been, with all due respect, the man in the in the background, the shadows. And and now you're going to be, have to sit in front of people like me and the media and explain things. How does that sit with you? Are you are you ready for the onslaught? Yeah, I, I, I'm. Yes, I, I'm. I much rather preferred uh, in the past 
to, to sit at the back and almost go under the radar. And, and I think that was always nice. You know, you can, you, you can plan and do your stuff and people don't actually know you. They, they don't know what you look like. Even in change rooms after matches, people wouldn't know who I am. Or, and that, that is great, you know. That was always that was awesome. <laughs> the, the nice thing now, okay, it's a decision you make, you know, and, and, and the thing that we discussed, myself, Rossi, as director of Rugby, listen, what is your plans? And you and you discuss it with your families because the nice thing is your families are, are nicely and protected, as you rightly say, if you're not in the spotlight that much. And 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 then it's a decision that you, you have to make. And it's uh, you ask me, listen, am I ready for it? I, it's almost, I, I don't... I, and currently, as I'm sitting here, I don't, I don't know what I'm, what I'm actually getting myself into. Luckily, I hope so. Uh, um, and and only time will tell. And I wouldn't have taken the job if I'm not uh, comfortable with the idea uh, of being more in the uh, in the spotlight and probably being the guy that's going to get the blunt of the criticism and stuff like that. Yes, it, it, like I said, it's something that you discuss with your family. It's something you discuss with your director of rugby and something that you have to sort out within yourself. Listen, do you want to continue doing what you're doing, running, sitting at the back and, 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 and almost being in the shadows or listen, are you going to come out? And, and that's, and that's a decision I made. And, and like I say, I think I'm ready, <laughs> but because I haven't done it before, it's probably it's, it's the best part of it is that I actually don't know what I'm getting myself into. It's combined with a very strange world we're going into and, and everything's changing. And in terms of rugby, we don't know what the landscape's going to look like in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. We don't know if there will be a full super rugby in 2021 just because of travel restrictions and quarantines and all those kind of things. We're not really sure what the... Um, rugby championship will look like how difficult is that for you in terms of trying to prepare not just for this year but you know you 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 down till 2023 you know looking ahead have you have you decided that well we were going to do x y and z in terms of training and in terms of alignment camps and now it's all up in there so how difficult has it been to sort of schedule what's going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months yeah, Craig, I don't think it's ideal. And purely because, yes, everything was pretty planned out for, for a four-year cycle, you know, in terms of what we were trying to achieve for 2021 with the British and Irish Lions. We have certain strategic goals that we would like to achieve, as a, and which we have discussed internally as, as coaches, as a coaching group, and then also at the few alignment camps we had. So, I mean, I, I think that will stay the same. I just think uh, the method of how we're going to get there is going gonna, is gonna to differ. And uh, we'll probably have to just adapt on the run uh, in, in terms of, uh, of how we're going to get to our strategic goals. I and, and, and to be honest, I don't think we, there's a, we have plans. Uh, obviously, we have, we have plans in place. If we start playing rugby tomorrow, this is... Uh, what how we would try and unpackage it, uh, but if we're only going to start playing in a month, this is uh, plan B. If if we're only going to play uh, starting next year, this is plan C. So we've got different scenarios planned for 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 how we're going to get back into it. But but to be honest, I'd, uh, it's probably going to be a hybrid of all of them because it, we don't know how things are going to pan out and when when rugby is going to start again for South Africa and how we're going to look ne next year and. Is it going to be super rugby? Is it going to be? Uh, we we don't. We just don't know. So, 
to be quite honest, it is tough, but it is what it is. You know, you can you can sit and top over it, or you can start. You can try and make as as many plans as possible and play out as many scenarios in your head as as possible. But at the end of the day, listen, you're probably gonna have to fix things and make plans and adapt uh, on the run. How difficult has it been for players in particular? I mean, they play. They're athletes. They're young, strong, healthy rugby players. That's what they want to do and they want to get out there and they've had that taken away from them. So as a coach, how difficult has it been to keep these guys motivated when you're chatting to them? I'm sure you're having Zoom sessions or Google Hangouts or whatever it is you use um, with players regularly. How, How tricky has that motivational side of it been for you yes craig you know the players are are currently i think they they they're not under us currently they they full on with the franchises and the clubs you know so Mm. our level of involvement is isn't that that high on the players currently but it will be uh, our involvement currently is probably more with the with the clubs from a national point of view we are trying uh, we are doing a little we are doing a lot of research in terms of how return to play worked uh, for New Zealand for the Bundesliga uh, um, how it's currently running in, in in Europe in England and in France how the return to play policies are, are running and and what is the hiccups and and we're trying to learn as much from other guys going back into sport and then to try and feed that info to to the franchises so in terms of our involvement from a national side is currently more uh, trying to assist and and planning uh, and, and no not not planning with the franchises but trying to assist and give as much info as we can get from out there uh, to the to the franchises because because we are so far behind if you look at New Zealand and and Australia who started playing already i think if we if we get our we have to get our return to play spot on you know because if we get that wrong we, it's going to put us back even more so so currently because there's not a lot of recent games uh, i mean our only involvement with players will be if we in our analysis if we pick up stuff that we think is quite will be beneficial for us or something that we would like players opinion on uh, i mean that's how we get involved with the players through microsoft teams currently is we would just show them listen this is what we are seeing happening in in new zealand this is what's currently happening in australia this is what we we picked up when we did uh, analysis on the world cup on, on the other teams and in the six nations and the few games that got played so so that's that's our involvement currently with the players it's more it's more on things that we picked up and uh, do you think we do the players think we need to incorporate it within our game or not incorporate uh, incorporate it in our game? So, but so the, the, the tough guys currently keeping that have to keep the players motivated is the franchises, the coaches, as Bobo and mm. and Sean at the Sharks, and they have to to keep the players motivated because the the players want to get back on the park, and we we're waiting for green light from government and stuff like that. So yeah. so they the guys with the, with the pressure, I think, in terms of that. Now, Jacques, this is the, 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 the tricky question, or it's probably the most simple question in many ways. Kitsch Christie, Francois Pinar, Jake White, John Smith, Rassi Rasmus, Sia Khaleesi. The coach always has his captain. <laughs> does, does the new Springbok coach have a different idea about a captain? No, no. Yes, I, I, I mean, like we, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it, it, it will be the captain is probably going to be. He's got to play. He's got to. He's got to play well first of all, you know. But I. But I mean, and and that's the tough part. Currently, the captain is currently Sia, and and it it will be Sia until yeah. he doesn't play well enough to get selected for the box. If you understand what I'm saying, if he, if his performance doesn't warrant selection, yeah. I mean, but but if his performance warrants selection. Uh, he's the captain of the team and, and he will probably stay the captain of the team uh, as long as his performance is good enough. Absolutely. And I mean, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, as they say. But I, I mean, just how inspirational is he, Jacques? I mean, from inside the team, we all know Sia from the outside. But... Yeah, Sia, Sia is a very good captain. I've, I've worked with Sia since, uh, I think, 2011 when he joined the Western Province as a 19-year-old. Uh, he was our captain back then. So, 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 Sia being captain and captaincy uh, for me has been ten years now, almost ten years, nine years that I've come with Sia being a captain. And and uh, what makes Sia, in my opinion, in great is is that he's a calm, level-headed guy. He's, he's a very you guys know him probably better than than most. Is he's a humble guy. He's, uh, he's a straight shooter. He doesn't come with thrills and. The little things. He's he's a straight shooter from the hip, and obviously, like I mentioned, like I said just now, he, he plays well. Yeah. He's a good rugby player. He's a, and that's probably he leads by example. If you if you if you think if you look at his performance uh, in the World Cup, you know, and a lot of people forget that was probably his biggest challenge. You know, being a good captain is one thing, but but to be a good captain, you've got to play rugby well because the other players get inspired by your play first before they get exp- uh, uh, inspired by your captaincy, you know. And Sia came from a, from an injury, so he didn't participate in the rugby championship. Yeah. So the big thing for Sia was he had to get back on the biggest stage in the World Cup and he was try- He needed to get his form back. Or not his form back, he was coming from injury. So he needed to peak and get, get him to perform as a rugby player. So I think that probably speaks volume of him, you know, to, to come into a World Cup. We just won the rugby championship. Matt Duane was the captain in that. And and to come into a team, that pressure on you, listen, I need to play well, I need to lead this team. And 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 that speaks probably volumes to the group we had. Yeah. There was a lot of assistance from 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 a lot of uh, players within the group, you know, and and I know Sia will be probably one of the first guys to say, listen, there was there was so much help from the senior players, and if he may, he's mentioned it a couple of times because it was a it was a high it was a high pressure environment, and listen, that speaks volume of of Sia in terms of of why he's such a good leader. I mean, he handled that pressure remarkably. And now you've got to carry that pressure for the next however long, three or four years. You are the world champions wherever you go. The Springboks are the world champions. You're the coach of the world champions. You will be the captain of the world champions. And there's always that target on your back. Does that change anything in the way you guys go about things now that you, you've achieved that that pinnacle? Or, or is it business as usual? Because often when you get to, you achieve the goal, it's like, well, we're at the top of the mountain. The only way is down. How do you, how do you view that scenario? I think we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves in terms of that. I haven't thought about it a lot, but that would be my first thing is, listen, let's get on the field first. So let's get our return to play perfect because uh, if we get that wrong, our whole planning and and, uh, and getting the players back into training first, then getting them back into contact and then getting them back playing rugby on the field again. If we get that wrong, 
uh, we won't be we won't be number one one in the world. So the first let's baby steps is let, let's get that right first. The moment we get our players playing on the field and and, and they played a couple of games and 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 there is an opportunity for us to to go into international window. I um, mean, then we'll take it from there, and then we'll get to that bridge when we get there. But the first thing is, listen, make, the players must make sure they're well-conditioned so that they are probably going to go in an accelerated season where we'll have to get into rugby quite quickly and and as quickly as possible, you know, for financial reasons. Mm. And then we might also go into a season that might be 16 to 18 months. So, the first thing the player must do is make sure that he's very that he's well conditioned to handle those two loads that will get placed on them. So I haven't thought about the other stuff yet in terms of the target on our back. Our target on our back, in my opinion, is currently to get back into playing rugby again and to play good rugby. And once we've ticked that box, the next target will be, okay, we need to perform at, at international level. Jacques, I think that's a fairly good place to end it. I mean, are you confident that you will get some rugby this year? A test level, anyway. I'm not, talk- I'm not just talking about franchise level, or is it still too up in the air uh, to make that prediction just yet? Yeah, yes, Craig. No, I, I, I think it's, too, uh, it's still up in the air. We're preparing as if we're going to play, and and that's the tough part and the frustrating part. And you don't know, you know, it might be a rugby championship, it might still be the the November or the end of year tour, but there's so many uh, stakeholders and role players and and things that needs to get taken into consideration. So, the tough part is. Uh, is we don't know, but I hope so. If you ask me now, listen, Jock, if you can, would you love to play international rugby this year? Without a doubt. I think I think our players will say the same thing. I mean, we, we would love to play some international rugby and just get back on the park. I think that's probably the biggest thing uh, that I've learned out of this, this whole pandemic is that how much you, you miss the... The, the ultimate highs, you know, and and the ultimate lows. It's funny to say, but I miss, mm. I'm, I just miss that massive roller coaster, you know, even if it's a massive high or massive low after the loss of a test match or the win of a test match. But just just that fluctuations, uh, I think that's probably what drives us uh, and in rugby is that build up to a test match and then. That, that that hope and yes that belief that it's going to go well and then sometimes it does go well and you you get a, a, a win under the belt and sometimes things go go pear shape and you lose a game and and then how you pick yourself up and get yourself motivated again and get focused again I, yes I just missed that so so I, so I would love to play some international rugby but yeah as I say there's a lot of things that the water that has to go underneath the bridge before we get to that well Jacques Ninaba let's hope there's a lot of those highs and a lot less of those lows in the next three to four years and the, the Springboks go well under your watch and good luck with the job because I'm sure you're going to need it at times but thanks for joining us today on the Maverick Sports Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was very enjoyable. Thanks for listening to the Maverick Sports Podcast and keep reading the Daily Maverick for in-depth news and sports coverage.